Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Anyone who read Firekeeper's Daughter knows the power and connection author Angeline Bully brings to her writing. Bully's follow-up young adult novel builds upon the storyline of the original characters by creating a page-turning mystery all within the backdrop of Northern Michigan Ojibwe culture. Today we talk with Bully about her newest book that embraces the joys and misfortunes of Native life through fiction. We're back after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A first-of-its-kind report on missing Indigenous persons in Alaska has been released. The State Department of Public Safety and the Anchorage Police Department collaborated to collect the data. It maps out hundreds of cases that go back to 1960. There have been other lists of missing people, but KMBA's Rhonda McBride looks at what makes this one different. The database has an important new feature. It categorizes the circumstances surrounding the disappearances, identifying those which are suspicious. Public Safety Commissioner James Cockrell hopes this will be helpful. And that's something I always thought we should have had with the missing persons clearinghouses, the circumstances of that person's, why is that person missing? And now we've taken that step. The work, which is an outgrowth of Governor Dunleavy's People First initiative, will be updated every quarter and can be found online. I want you to know how heartfelt I am on this, this issue. And as long as I'm the commissioner, we're going to continue our focus on it and continue to listen and hopefully provide information that will help us in the future. In the last quarter, from April to June, Alaska Natives and American Indians made up about 45% of the total number of people who disappeared in Alaska. During that period, 200 Indigenous people were reported missing. Most were found, except for 25. As director of the group Data for Indigenous Justice, Charlene Ochpuk welcomes the new report and says it's what advocates for missing Indigenous people have been asking for for years. She worked on earlier attempts to track their numbers. Sadly, I think what this really illustrates is a systemic issue of violence that's being perpetrated in our community in the state of Alaska. And that should raise flags and alarms and really start igniting justice. Apo hopes the database will continue to improve and provide more information about those missing, including their hometowns and Native cultural identities. Apok says it's important that these numbers become more than just points of data. We know that these are very real loved ones missing from families who are missed and loved and mourned and grieved. The Alaska Missing Indigenous Persons Report is not a complete accounting of those missing. It only includes numbers from the state troopers and the Anchorage Police Department. The Department of Public Safety hopes to include cases from other police departments in future reports. In Anchorage, 
I'm Rhonda McBride. A Native youth group spent a week in Yellowstone and Grand Teton National Parks reconnecting with their roots. Wyoming Public Radio's Hannah Haberman reports. Thirteen Native youth from the Wind River Reservation and the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota explored the area alongside five traditional elders and teachers from the Lakota, Dakota, Northern Arapaho, Eastern Shoshone, and Blackfeet Nations. Lynette Grable is the leader of the youth group called Indigenous Youth Voices. It's the first time the group has hosted this kind of event. She says that sharing knowledge between generations is invaluable. Not only do we share our language and speak our language, we also share things that they probably haven't learned and won't be able to learn in school. Some of our traditional and oral knowledge and historical knowledge, as many people know, is not told in the right way. The group spent the week kayaking, whitewater rafting, and traditional storytelling. I'm Hannah Haberman. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Nobody likes a crowded highway. A crowded crib is even worse. For a safe night's sleep, use a fitted sheet only and be sure there are no toys, blankets, or pillows around your baby. Support by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. Ready to start, manage, or grow your small business? The U.S. Small Business Administration can help with advice and resources. See what SBA can do for you. Go to sba.gov start. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Welcome to Native America Calling your National Humanities Medal-winning radio show and podcast. Angeline Bully exploded on the scene two years ago with her debut novel, Firekeeper's Daughter. The New York Times bestselling author introduced the world to a contemporary Native American heroine with an unwavering love for community and culture. Bully has just released her much-anticipated sequel, Warrior Girl Unearthed, set in Bully's northern Michigan home of Sugar Island, lands of the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians, and featuring a new protagonist, 16-year-old Perry Firekeeper Birch. A young Native woman who, while becoming a leader in her tribe's efforts to repatriate ancestral remains, finds herself embroiled in a sinister plot of murder and betrayal. Today we'll talk with Angeline Bully about her new book and her life. And with that said, allow me to introduce our guest who is speaking with us from New Buffalo, Michigan, Angeline Bully. She's the author of the new book, Warrior Girl Unearthed, and she is an enrolled member of the Sault Ste. Marie Tribe of Chippewa Indians. Angeline, it's so good to have you on the show again. Welcome back. Ah, bonjour, Anine. It's so good to be back. Bonjour to you as well, and congratulations on your second novel. You didn't make us wait too long, so on behalf of all the Firekeeper Daughter fans out there, thank you. Ah, you're very welcome. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had a chance to read Warrior Girl on Earth this past weekend, and if my math is right, the story takes place about 10 years after Firekeeper's daughter, protagonist Donis Fontaine has grown into this kind of cool native anti-role, and her niece has now stepped up to be our new native BA. 
Tell us more, Angeline. Take over from there, please. Yes. So, um, gosh, the idea for Warrior Girl came to me. It was, uh, I had my agent and she said, okay, what else do you have? Because we were going to go out on submission with Firekeeper's Daughter and I had nothing. And uh, I was like walking around one day. I lived in Washington, D.C. at the time, just out for a Sunday walk. And all of a sudden, this character's voice popped into my head and she said, I stole everything they think I did and even stuff they don't know about yet. And I just thought, who is this person? And uh, I ran into the nearest business, um, uh, asked for a piece of paper and a pen and a Chardonnay. And I just like wrote what this 16 year old girl was telling me as she was sitting in a police station waiting for her parents to come pick her up. And that's when I knew my second book would be this like indigenous Lara Croft, but instead of raiding tombs, she's raiding museums and private collections to retrieve stolen ancestral remains and sacred items that do not belong in museums or private collections. But being 16 years old, um, none of her heists go the way that she plans. <laughs> yeah, she runs into some a few challenges along the way. So <laughs> that's such a cool story. So this idea just came into your head. And then I also read that that you actually saw a tweet when somebody was saying, hey, the, the world needs like a, a Native American Lara Croft. So that was also part of an inspiration, wasn't it? Yes. So before this like inspiration hit me, I had looked at a tweet on Twitter and it 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 made enough of an impression that I like liked it or saved it or took a screenshot of it. And um, so when I had the idea for that indigenous Lara Croft, I think that that earlier tweet from like a year prior uh, was still like was percolating just right beneath the surface. And her, um, Sarah Montoya, she had uh, tweeted movie idea, indigenous Lara Croft, but returning items like and and so i yeah so it all just kind of fit together wow that is so cool angeline sequels seem really challenging because they need to be written in a way that the story it makes sense to readers who already read the first book but it also has to to make sense to people who didn't read the book so was that hard making all the plot elements from both books fit together not really. I felt like the harder task would have been if I wanted to do a traditional sequel of Donis 2.0. And, and that did not excite me at all. Um, I was more excited to write a character that was so different from Donis. And I felt that she would be more interesting as a secondary character, like viewed through somebody else's eyes. So I really was excited to write a character who was just so different. Um, and I wanted to write it in a way that people could read the books out of order and, and that it would still make sense to them. 
It does. It very much does because you, you get those key elements there. You, you connect the dots for somebody who hadn't read the first book. Luckily, I had read the first book, so it, it made sense to me. And, and like I shared with you before we went on air, you know, your books just resonate with me because for somebody that spent a lot of time growing up in Michigan and I played ice hockey, I'm very familiar with some of these cities that are referenced in your books. And I even had a, a, a relative that at one point worked for the DEA. And then with um, the new book with Warrior Girl on Earth, there's like this summer internship program. And I, I've done a lot of youth work, so I'm familiar with like doing presentations <laughs> to those types of programs. And I've even played like Jeopardy games before with with young people. And I'm familiar with kind of like these teen clicks and stuff. So yeah, your books just really, really hit a lot of notes. And I just appreciate that so much. And then I also read that you felt some pressure because there's that, you know, that stereotype of the sophomore jinx and you had so much success with Firekeeper's Daughter. And did that influence the writing process for Warrior Girl on Earth? Just that pressure like that? It it did. It did in that if you hit a grand slam in your very first time at bat in the major leagues, um, your second time at bat, if you just get on base, is that, you know, you just want to get on base. You just want to prove that um, the first time at bat was not a fluke. And um, I, I did stress about it, but then I really tried to uh, talk to myself that, listen, you're a stronger writer than you were um, with Firekeeper's Daughter. Like there's so much I had to teach. I mean, it took 10 years to write Firekeeper's Daughter. And honestly, the first five years was probably me figuring out how to how to write, how to tell a story. Um, and, and so knowing that my second book, I was going into it as a stronger writer, that helped to maybe keep that second book uh, jinx maybe at arm's length. Mm -hmm. Well, tell us more about what it took to, to become a writer. Like you said, you had this, this whole new second career after working with the Department of Education. Did you take workshops or, or classes or did you just kind of figure it out on your own? No, I just figured it out on my <laughs> own. And, um, but then I would say about a year before I got my agent, I went to a native writers retreat. It was called Loon Song Turtle Island. It was um, put together by Cynthia Lydic Smith and Debbie Dahl Edwardson. And it was the first writing event that I ever went to. And honestly, I found out about it through Twitter because I followed some of these native authors that I just admired so much. And I started, you know, hearing about this retreat. And I thought, okay, I've not gone to any, I've not invested any money in a writer's conference or any, you know, retreat. I think this is the one. And it turned out to be such a, I don't know, such a, a magical experience. I mean, I met um, Carol Lindstrom, and this was before We Are Water Protectors, uh, Kara Rogers, uh, uh, Don Quigley, um, you know, there were just so many, uh, Rainey Hobson, uh, just, there were so many incredible writers that were just, it was like, we kind of knew we stumbled into something special because it was, it was like, 
being able to talk with other Native writers, and we didn't have to spend half the time explaining who we who we are and what we're writing about and why that makes sense to us. And, and that was such a different experience from any writer's group that I had ever participated in, you know, where there weren't, where it wasn't an all native group. I just think it was something just, just so incredible. Uh, Debbie Reese was there. Um, it just, it was the most incredible experience. And that changed my belief in that the dreams I had for my writing career, that it was possible and that it was within my grasp. And then what I also find so amazing, it, it all came together for you so quickly because once you, you you figured the craft and you wrote that book, it sounds like it didn't take very long to get an agent, to get a book deal. And then the movie options, of course, I mean, it just all just came together quickly. Yeah, I would say within six months of that Loon Song Turtle Island, I had my agent. And then within five months of that, I had a seven-figure uh, two-book deal from a major publisher, and I had the film deal with with the Obamas. <laughs> well, we're definitely gonna gonna talk about that. Uh, the Obamas production company, who has optioned uh, your first book, and of course, uh, lots more to talk about with Warrior Girl on Earth. But we do have to take a short break. Our guest today, Angeline Bully, New York Times bestselling author, just released this new book, and it is really, really a good read. We'll be right back. This is Sean Spruce, host of Native America Calling. You can listen in every weekday to hear the only national call-in show from a Native American perspective. We explore topics that range from traditional cultural practices to up-to-the-minute news that affects every American. We hope you can join us for the next Native America Calling. I'm Michael, and I used to smoke. I never used to think about breathing. Then my left lung collapsed and I was diagnosed with COPD. Now I think about breathing all the time. I'm on an oxygen machine so I can breathe. I take medicine so I can breathe. My tip is enjoy the breaths you don't have to think about. You don't know how long you'll have them. Smoking can cause COPD. You can quit. For free help, visit cdc.gov slash quit now. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking with best-selling author Angeline Bully today. Her new novel, Warrior Girl Unearthed, is a story of love, murder, and betrayal, all within the setting of a Native community's effort to reclaim its ancestors. Angeline, I think one of the hallmarks of your writing that readers really appreciate is just how much you teach people about Native issues 
native events, history, culture, and uh, both of the books really double down on a wide range of, of issues facing contemporary Native people. And it's it's really a fun way to learn because, like, for instance, this new book, I mean, anybody who needs, like, a crash course in the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act, reading War Girl, I mean, that's, like, a really fun way to learn that information. Thank you. Miigwech. Uh, yeah, my career has been in uh, education, and and so... I just figured out that through the power of a story, you can educate, but um, entertain in a weird way. Uh, it's it's a way to draw people in. And I could give a lecture about NAGPRA, or you could read this book and get the same information and truly care about the characters that are and the communities that are experiencing these issues in real life. Absolutely. And I know in your first book, you consulted with with a lot of law enforcement people to write more accurate portrayals of your characters and scenes. And who provided some of the technical expertise for War Girl Unearthed? Uh, my primary source was uh, is uh, Shannon Martin, and she had been the uh, executive director for the Zeboing Cultural Center um, in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, operated by the Susan or by the uh, Saginaw Chippewa Indian tribe. And um, she was my primary resource, but also, you know, Sonia Adelaide, um, uh, Shannon O'Loughlin at Association on American Indian uh, Affairs, uh, my own tribe's uh, repatriation people, Colleen Medicine, Cecil Pavlot, um, you know, there just there were a lot of really great people that were so willing to answer questions that I had and help, you know, help me make this a, a realistic and good uh, depiction about what it's like to repatriate. And I did want to note that I dedicated my book to the 108 328 ancestors still held by institutions and those working to bring them home. And, you know, Shannon, uh, Cecil, Colleen, um, you know, uh, Eric Hemingway, Willie, uh, Willie Johnson, like there are just so many people that are doing this incredible work. Mm. The book is also, both books are just loaded with, with language and, did you get assistance with that as well? Or do you, are you really well, are you very fluent in, in your native language as well? I definitely had help because I am so not, um, I'm, I'm that generation that it skipped over. So my dad grew up fluent, um, but then he, you know, decided not to teach us. And I understand he was making a loving decision, wanting to spare us from some of the, really negative situations that he had growing up. I mean, Sault Ste. Marie was a very difficult place to grow up being a dark-skinned Native man in the 40s and 50s, and I would argue it still is. Um, so yeah, I think I'm that generation that our parents, you know, a parent knew the language, spoke it maybe even fluently, and um, opted not to teach us. And then our kids are curious about it, my own kids went to Saginaw Chippewa Tribe, uh, Saginaw Chippewa Academy that had uh, uh, Ojibwe language. And 
And so my kids were getting it. And I remember them talking to my dad and my dad saying, oh, that's so wonderful. Make sure you, you know, keep them with the language. They need to have that. And there was kind of that growth that I needed to do of, I don't have it to give, but let me see what I can do. Um, so yes, I definitely get help on Anishinaabe Mawin. Uh, uh, Dr. Margaret Noden, she's been a great help. And also uh, Dr. Michelle Wellman-Teeple at Bay Mills Community College. She's She's been incredible. And Angeline, your characters, first it was Donis, now we have Perry. How much of you is is in those two characters? They're they're empowered, they're intelligent, they're they're spunky as well. Is that you? Uh, Living I would vicariously? Say I'm closer I'm closer to Donis than I am to Perry. Perry's who I wish I would have been as a teen. I'm more <laughs> uh close to her sister Pauline high-achieving and extremely anxious. Uh, <laughs> and and so, yeah, Perry was so wonderful to write because I could kind of live vicariously through her and say all the things that I wish I could say in the moment and, you know, leap without looking or thinking about consequences. Uh, she was absolutely refreshing and just a breath of fresh air, which I felt like given the subject matter of repatriations, which can be such an intense uh, subject matter. I felt like Perry's um, joie de vivre, that lightness of spirit was so important. And that's what made her the perfect narrator to tell this story. Mm -hmm. And the romantic interest in, in Firekeeper's Daughter, it's Jamie, who's the undercover person and then in this book it's uh it's Eric and I have heard you say that there was actually when you were in high school there was a a, a guy in your school who was doing undercover work so that was kind of the motivation for Jamie and so I'm curious is was there an Eric in your life somewhere along the line too no um Eric was okay when I worked for my tribe Saginaw or I'm sorry Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians um, I supervised our internship program and I saw that, you know, uh, about half of the student, half of the interns came from locally. And then the other half were Sioux tribe members who had never lived or worked uh, or had a close connection with the tribe and they were so new to everything. And so really Eric was inspired by that of someone who is an enrolled citizen but really doesn't have, you know, has never lived in the community and is kind of learning all of this stuff um, as he goes along. Mm. Well, Angeline, as you shared earlier, the first book, it's been optioned by the Obama's production company. The company's called Higher Ground Productions. And the plan is to adapt it into a Netflix series. Any updates you can share regarding that project? Well, before the writer's strike, which I fully support, uh, we have a showrunner and a head writer. The head writer is Winona Wilms, and I believe she's Redcliffe Ojibwe. Um, and they had completed a script that everyone was pleased with. Netflix, you know, gave the green light to. And um, the next step would be to assemble a writer's room, which means, 
adding four to eight more writers. Hopefully they are all native and uh, they would work on the scripts for the rest of season one. And once they get those scripts approved, then they can go into production and casting and all of that. But um, with the writer strike, everything is on uh, pause. And I completely support the writer strike. Um, writing, writing for the screen is not a gig job. And to try to treat it like part of the gig economy does a disservice to the immense talent of writers who deserve a living wage. And it is a disservice to viewers who want quality programming. Mm -hmm. We did a show just uh, last month uh, with some Native American television and, and movie writers, and they shared the very same thoughts you're expressing today. So it's wonderful to, to see that solidarity there that you have with, with Native writers and all writers for, for television and movies, Angeline. And so hopefully it sounds like, though, once they get through this dispute, uh, this is going to happen. This Netflix series will, will probably happen here within hopefully the next couple of years. Yeah, it's going to happen. And I keep thinking like, I want a cameo. Um, this <laughs> is so weird. But I think about like, what role would I want to be as a cameo? And because um, I think about Stan Lee. And <laughs> in oh, all of yeah, so um, I don't know. Well, you've got those two great grandma characters, Millie right i mean oh oh yeah mini mini and Minnie, granny sorry, june yeah. uh Cini. um there's a lot of characters that i think i could just kind of pop in and i don't know but uh, you're not old enough for those characters but they could maybe like age progress you maybe right with the mother yeah, I, I could be like a friend of aunt teddy's um or something like that yeah there you go. There you go. Well, I also want to ask you, Angeline, have the Obamas come calling for Warrior Girl? They have the first rights to it. Um, but yeah, we're not we're not read, we're not there to announce anything yet. So Okay. Let's Alrighty. just see what happens. <laughs> okay, we'll do that. Angeline, we've got a caller on the line right now, Brian, who is listening on KUNM in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Brian, you are on the air talking with Angeline Bully. Well, thank you so much. It's a great broadcast, and I have yet to read the books, but after this interview, it definitely makes me want to go get them. My question is about your writing process, Angeline. I mean, do you, do you follow a schedule? You had mentioned you were in education. Did you write in the evening? How, did you, how, do, how do you structure your day around the writing process? I was a completely different writer for books one and book two. So for book one, I was working, you know, full time. And so the only time I had where my brain felt creative and alert was the first thing in the morning. And towards the end, you know, when I was, um, you know, writing that final draft, it was, I would get up at 4.30 in the morning and I would write for three hours before I would have to commute into the district you know, to work my day job at, at the U.S. Department of Education. Um, for my second book, for Warrior Girl, I, I was a full-time author working for myself. Ideally, that meant I had all day to write, and I found 
it was so hard. I ended up like writing at night um, because it just seemed like my day got filled up with so many things, you know, promoting Firekeeper's Daughter, um, doing public speaking. And uh, really, I, I kind of turned into a night writer. And uh, I'm working on my third book. And I want to get back to that early morning when I would wake up with story on my mind. And I just felt so alive and creative. Angela, thank you for responding to Brian's question. And you just mentioned the third book. So I got to ask, is this uh, another installment of the the Firekeeper, perhaps a trilogy we're looking at here? Oh, yeah. My story's about Sugar Island. So yes, I'm working on a third book and we don't have any announcement yet. And uh, But I have a really great idea and I'm... Publishing is one of those weird things where you have news and then you can't talk about it for like a year or six months. And so um, I have really good news, but I can't talk about it for a bit. <laughs> okay. Well, being the sneaky sometimes, I got to get kind of sneaky in this job as the host. So I'm going to figure out if I can kind of get a little bit more information with this next question. So through your fiction, you've broached issues like missing and murdered Indigenous people, repatriation, boarding schools, blood quantum, even land back, land back movement, things like that. So I got to ask you, what other social, political, and historical issues that, that face Native people do you see a need to address through your books? Iqua. There we go. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> Maybe a I spoiler alert. I don't too, know. <laughs> Firekeeper's Daughter, Element of Fire, uh, Warrior Girl Unearthed, Element of Earth, and so if you follow, you know, the four elements, um, you know, that mm. kind of is a major clue about where I see my career uh, headed. Very revealing, very revealing, Angeline. Um, so much of your work is inspiring young people to read. And, and sometimes I, I like to read a lot. I'm, we're, we're contemporaries. We're about the same age. And, but I worry sometimes there's so many forms of media right there that are competing for young people's attention. There's movies, there's television, they've got video games, social media. Do you ever worry that just that simple act that you and I grew up with, reading a book, spending time sitting there, that that could at some point become obsolete in a way that people absorb knowledge and information? No, I, I really don't because um, I, I'm a fan of audiobooks and I absolutely love uh, both of my audiobooks that are narrated by Isabella Starr LeBlanc. And I think audiobooks is like a, it's a really great avenue to reach people that maybe, you know, um, you know, don't want to read, but they still want to hear story and their minds still create those picture, those images in their mind. And to be able to hear the language spoken um, in the way that it was meant to. Uh, I, I think graphic novels, I think whatever avenue reaches a person, that's, that's perfectly fine by me. And you know, talking about the audiobooks, are you involved with those productions as well, or is that a completely separate project? 
Not so much in the production. So I was able to select Isabella Star LeBlanc uh, for the first book and then that we wanted her back for the second. And um, the, you know, Dr. Margaret Noden and um, Dr. Michelle Wellman Teeple, you know, they worked with her on pronunciation things. Um, so yeah, for me, it was more of identifying the right narrator and then just kind of stepping back and letting the rest of the process happen. Mm. Angela, we're going to have to take another break here. This is our second break of the show and we'll be right back. We've got more with Angela and Bully on the other side. Did you know that bare space is best when it comes to your baby's sleep? That's right, when you keep their crib free from toys, pillows, blankets, and other loose objects, you can drastically reduce the risk of suffocation. All your little one needs is to be placed on their back atop a tightly fitted sheet to ensure a safer night's rest. More infant sleep safety information at cpsc.gov. Support by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. There's still time to give a shout out to our guest today, young adult fiction author, Angeline Bully. We've got another caller on the line. His name is Clifton. He's also listening on KUNM in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hello there, Clifton. Hello. Hey, uh, so excited to hear about the new book. And I just uh, had to take advantage of this opportunity to thank Angeline for this incredibly well-crafted you know, essentially uh, kind of a, a mystery thriller that uh, kept me just concerned. I couldn't put the book down. And at the same time, set against the backdrop of Sugar Island, uh, and uh, that sort of helped me know uh, some people in a new way, um, all so seamlessly put together. And, you know, I'm an emotional guy. I may have cried. So I'm really looking forward to the new book. Thank you very much. Angeline, feel free to respond to Clifton. Yes. Miigwech, thank you so much. Um, yeah, <laughs> for the tears, just for the emotion, because to me that means the story resonated with you. Um, you either saw yourself or people you love and situations that you care about. And to me, that's the when we say books are good medicine, that's exactly what it is when it taps into our spirit and connects us with our communities and families. Um, really, that's truly the best compliment an author can receive is that the story moved, that, moved a reader. 
Angela, and I want to build on what Clifton just said because my sister's a big reader, and right after I read Firekeeper's Daughter, I sent her a copy, and she read it. And, and one of her biggest takeaways, there, there is a scene, and, and I won't say too much for people that haven't read the book, but there's a scene when one of the key characters goes away to prison, and his family comes and camps out outside the prison. And it's a reference to how families would do that when, when young people back in the day were sent to boarding school, right? They would come, the families would camp out next to the boarding school and just wait for their kids and, and show that their support in that way outside of the building. And she described, my sister said that she had never read another native author that was able to capture how we as native people love. She said, Angeline Bully captured what it is to love among native people. And I, I couldn't agree more. And, and have you, have you been told that before? Um, not in regards to that particular scene, which is one of my favorite uh, parts of the book. And it happened in the very final round of revisions with my editor. I just, I, I was, I fell in love with that character. He reminded me of so many of my, my son's friends and former students that I had worked with in different tribal communities. And I just wanted a different ending for him and for him with his family intact there supporting him and, and, you know, loving him in the way that the best way that they knew how through song, through prayer, through physically just being right there. Um, yeah, I was definitely inspired by a picture that I saw of, you know, teepees outside of the perimeter of a boarding school and, you know, our families love and we love in the best way that we know how. And, and thank you, miigwech. That means so much that that was seen by your relative. You bet, Angeline. And that character we're describing, uh, he reappears in Warrior Girl Unearthed and, um, and he's doing great. Yeah, my characters, the ones I love, they like are making <laughs> appearances in, uh, yeah, yep. I love, that's something that um, I think Louise Erdrich, uh, you know, she she's such a prolific writer. And I think she's so Anishinaabe in how she writes because she, you'll be introduced to a character in one book and then four books later, it's the main character. And, and I think thinking about story and communities in terms of these extended family, um, ex this community relationships, um, that, that felt very natural to me. It, it made sense for me to do as well. I think my, my tear jerking moment, uh, in the first book was when Donis, uh, she, she has, she's not enrolled. And, and she gets enrolled, but she needs the support of a certain number of tribal people. And she's not sure if she's going to get it. And she goes into that room and like everybody's in there. Like the entire yeah. community is there. That was a yeah. moment when I just, yeah, I teared up with it because that was so moving. It was such a beautiful scene. Yeah. I think that's chapter 28. Yeah. <laughs> I have people who are like, um, you know, I lost it at that point, you know, because she needs at least three tribal elders to do an affidavit asserting that, yes, they know her to be 
the daughter of Levi Firekeeper Sr. And then when this whole line of elders, all these elders that she's been, you know, meeting with and and talking with and doing iTunes playlists for, and they all come through for her. I just, yeah, that that's a that's a triumphant moment because it's not about the membership card. It's about recognizing that she belongs in that community, her, yes. her recognition um, as a part of the family. Yes. And it, it applies to so many people today. I think so many people relate to that issue and, and that scene just it illustrates it so beautifully. Angeline, tell us about the cover art for War Girl Unearthed. Oh, Warrior Girl on Earth. The cover art is by Michaela Goad. She's Alaska Native, and we were able to get her to do the uh, cover illustration right after she won the Caldecott Award, which is the highest award that a children's book illustrator can receive. And she's the first Indigenous artist to ever be, you know, to ever receive it. And so I know my publisher and I, we were so excited to be able to work with her. And I really wanted Warrior Girl Unearthed to have an identity that was unique because it's not, because it was a standalone, it could be a standalone story. And so I really wanted an identity that set, set it apart from Firekeeper's Daughter. That was that a different said, artist, right? For Firekeepers. Yes, own, but... yes. That said, I will never stop speaking the praises of Moses Lunham from Kettle and Stony Point um, First Nation, Ontario. His cover art for Firekeeper's Daughter, to this day, it is the most breathtaking cover I've ever seen in my life. Mm. Yeah, I, and I've heard you describe it as it's just like really, really Anishinaabe. Like there's just no mistaking yeah. it for somebody who knows. Yes. That is so cool. Angeline, your books have made some really high profile reading lists. Do you pay attention to that stuff? And does it have a big impact on, on book sales and things like that? It does have an impact on sales. And I do pay attention. Like I'd like to say, oh, it doesn't matter to me, but truthfully it does because, um, you know, if you're a, if you're an indigenous artist, um, indigenous author who gets that shot at the major leagues, um, how well you do at bat, it matters because it's not just about you. It's about the big five publishers looking at okay so can we take a chance on another indigenous author are these stories marketable are they going to be a success like can they be a commercial success can they be a literary success and so that's where new york times bestseller lists and other lists um and you know being shortlisted on different things and making these you know best of summer or best of you know 2023 so far those kinds of things they matter to me because it makes a real difference in publishing to see that our stories are we've always known we've always had incredible authors we just were not getting the book deals our stories have always been incredibly told and worthwhile 
but for publishing to get behind indigenous authors, they need to see, can it be um, marketable, uh, commercial, literary, some combination of it. Um, and, and so that's why I care about how my book does, because it makes a difference to the other indigenous authors that are, that just want their shot. Mm. Angeline, tell us more about your family, your children, and, and how are they taking in all of your fame and your success in these recent years? Okay. So my dad's Ojibwe. And he, you know, he loves my writing. He didn't always, but um, he loves my writing. And I remember when I told him that I got the book deal for Firekeeper's Daughter and he was like, don't make any changes from the, the, the man, you know, the pages that I read. Um, you really told like who we are and don't change anything. But yeah, I ended up changing a lot. But um I don't know. I'll ask my mom what she thinks of my books. And she's like, oh, it was good. And that's as much as I get out of her. Um, my daughter is my hugest fan. She's 24 and uh, works for Ford Motor Company. Um, my two sons are 28 and 29. And honestly, I don't, I gave, I gave birth to some reluctant readers and uh <laughs> I don't know that they've ever read my books. Um, I do know one of my sons has listened to part of my audiobook because I was in a car with them and I put my audiobook on. Um, but other than that, so yeah. To me, it, when a cousin of mine says that they read the book and I got it right, that to me is like the highest compliment you could get. For my cousin Deb or, you know, uh, other other cousins of mine that if they praise the book, to me, that's like gold. It It's everything. Mm. Well, hopefully your sons, if they haven't read the books yet, they'll, they'll be able to watch the Netflix series and they'll, they'll get up to speed with what they're missing. I can't believe that. <laughs> you know, they, what do they say? Like preachers and teachers, like our kids sometimes, like, <laughs> I don't know. I just, yeah, I, I'm such a voracious reader. And then to have both of my sons be quite reluctant, uh, readers. Um, yeah. So I just, they'll they'll find the story and i just hope that when they do that um that they connect with it and that they're proud of me angela do you have any thoughts of ever writing any nonfiction? i i've kind of thought about it this is kind of like a huge <laughs> spoiler or whatever i don't know um, when I'm done writing my four book series, I would really love to do a combination memoir and craft of writing, um, you know, something along the lines of here are the stories behind my story, and here's how I figured out how to write and tell a story. Um, so I, I think about that. It'd be interesting. Yeah, for sure. So, well, that's a little bit of a spoiler alert then four book series. So we can expect. Oh, two God, I did. I let that. Well, <laughs> there's, you know, four elements. So I, I did allude to it previous. Yeah. Yeah. 
Wow. This is just so, so exciting. And I'm so happy for you and just all of your success. And it's just such an inspiration to, to hear your story, Angeline, and learn more about what motivates you. Like, like I told you, that just, you know, from, from somebody who spent a lot of time in Michigan, I, it just, it's, it's really, really fun to, to just learn more about you and, and what you've done with your craft and, and your work. And I want to ask you also, like, when you were working there at the Department of Indian Education, what did your colleagues think? Did they know that you were this aspiring author there, you know, by, in the mornings before work and in the evenings afterwards? No, I didn't. I didn't really talk about it. Um, but I remember the day of my book auction, um, you know, my <laughs> it was a, an ordinary day at work. But meanwhile, on lunch hour, uh, I was on the phone with my agent uh, hearing about the offers and this and that. And I remember going to my supervisor uh, at the end of the day and I let her know that I had gotten a seven figure deal. And, you know, it was kind of like my days at Department of Ed were numbered at that point because there was this bigger dream that was going to take me. Um, so, yeah, I do want to give a shout out to um, Melanie O'Brien at the National NAGPRA program with the National Park Service. So when I said about dedicating my book to the 108,000 ancestors that are still in collections, I saw her at a recent event and she told me the number is now at 101,000. And so that number is going down. And then uh, Sioux Tribe, Sioux St. Marie Tribe of Chippewa Indians, our compliance officer for NAGPRA is uh, Marie Richards. And she sent me an email and said that when she read my book, she had to like set it aside a little bit because there were parts that were just so intense for her doing the repatriation work. And she said one time when she set the book aside, she got an email and it was from Michigan State University saying they had just received the notice of transfer that they were going to be able to repatriate some, you know, some ancestors. And she said, um, there's a part in the book where uh, Perry asks Cooper, her mentor, how do you do this work when it's so, you know, heavy on your heart? And uh, Marie said, I would answer back. It's for those moments when you get that email that says notice of transfer. You're going to get these ancestors. You're going to bring them home. That's why you do the work. That's how you endure. Mm -hmm. Angeline, thank you again for talking with us today and continued success on your storytelling journey. to start, manage, or grow your small business? The U.S. Small Business Administration can help. I got help from SBA from the very first day. They have taught us so many different things like government contracting, finding funding, and how to get new opportunities to do business. There are people who are there to help you, and that's SBA. 
for your small business needs, go to sba.gov start. All SBA programs and services are extended to the public on a non-discriminatory basis. Program support by the Colorado Plateau Foundation, a native-led foundation supporting native-led initiatives protecting the lands, waters, and cultures of the plateau for generations to come. The Colorado Plateau Foundation helps to build networks, community, and organizational capacity. The Colorado Plateau Foundation is accepting grant proposals through September 2nd. Eligibility information is available at coloradoplateaufoundation.org. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.